If you think you felt a great disturbance in the force, you're not wrong. Ed Gross and me, Mark A. Altman, have a new oral history coming out this July from St. Martin's Press. It's Secrets of the Force, the complete, uncensored, unauthorized oral history of the Star Wars saga. So wherever you buy books, audio and video, pick it up today, pre-order, and you can learn the secrets of the Force. And don't miss our oral history of Star Trek in stores now. And of course, nobody does it better. The complete oral history of James Bond in digital, hardcover, paperback, and audio. That is all. Hey, Darren, have you been watching us on uh, the Electric Now app? I have. I haven't recently because I, I, I watch you pretty much every week when we're doing these things. But Yeah, but, you know, <laughs> it, it's, it's, you know what I love about it's, the Electric Now app? It's better it's on so video. It's so easy to use. It's, it's, it's better really on video. Easy. Download the it. app and you watch us. That's all there is to it. It's so and, simple. And a lot of other cool stuff, too. You go to the app store. It says Electric Now. You download it. And then... You press, in the United States, press the button, and there it is. There it is, and you can choose. You can bookmark it. There's plenty of other movies and TV show to enjoy, and episodes of all your favorite Electric Surge podcasts. So why wait? Download the Electric Now app and start enjoying us anytime. If you're a fan of Inglorious Trexperts, you're gonna love Trexperts Briefing Room, a Trexperts new series. Briefing Room. What is that? I was about to explain, then you interrupted oh, me. I it sorry. Is, it's curated audio commentaries of classic Star Trek episodes from the original series all the way through Enterprise. You're going to love it as we explore the behind the scenes making of all these wonderful Star Trek episodes with cast and crew that you would never expect to hear doing audio commentaries on Star Trek. Sounds like fun. It will be. And you <laughs> can find it on the Inglorious Trexperts podcast feed and on the new Trexperts briefing podcast, wherever you listen to podcasts. Let's go see. What's out there? If you're a fan of the 430 movie, you'll love Best Movies Never Made, hosted by myself, Josh Miller. And Steven Scarlatta. Where we explore some of the greatest movies never made, like E.T. 2. Johnny Quest. Beetlejuice Goes Hawaiian. And Halloween 3D. New episodes available every other Monday, wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. And this is Darren Docterman. And we are the Inglorious Tragsperts. And today we're going back in time to a very, <laughs> very seminal part of Star Trek history. It's the production of The Cage with its legendary director, Bob Butler. And one of the things that I, I can't I tell you enough is while... For Star Trek fans, the cage may be a significant uh, uh, um, moment uh, in their television history. Bob is responsible for so many shows that we love. He directed the pilot for Hogan's Heroes, Batman, High Diddle Riddle. Um, he did Hill Street Blues, Moonlighting, Remington Steel, Lois and Clark. We're going to talk about all of them. So, you know, we don't just leave it. You know, we're, we're, we come for the Star Trek. But stay for everything else. Stay for the stay for the wonderfulness. 
because we got a lot to unpack. And, and Bob's just an extraordinary guy uh, and a super talented director. And we're thrilled to have him on the podcast. It's somebody we wanted to have. I was lucky enough to interview him at the American Cinematheque probably, well, probably about six years ago for the 50th anniversary uh, screening we did at the, at the American Cinematheque. And it was such a thrill then. But I, I, you know, they they really limit you. And I had a big panel of people. It was like DC and David and, and Bob. And so, you know, I only got to ask him a few questions and spent very little time uh, because they, and then there was Q&A. And, and, and so this was a chance for Darren and I to sort of do a deep dive. And I could have talked to him probably for another hour, more, another hour. But, you know, it was clearly, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's, he's in his 90s. I mean, I, yeah. I didn't want to take too much advantage of, uh, of his time. Um, and uh, but it was but really it's, a, uh, it was it's a great interview. He he gives us a lot of uh, wonderful moments and uh, uh, some great insights into, you know, what it takes to be a director, specifically in uh, in the wonderful world of television. Yeah, that's a great point. If you enjoyed our Joe D'Augusta interview from a couple of weeks back, you're going to love our, our Bob Butler interview today. So stay with us as we bring on the director of Star Trek's first pilot, The Cage. Well, first of all, Bob, welcome. I have to ask you, because we've talked about this recently on the podcast, um, I'm not sure, I'm sure people have told you that in Quentin Tarantino's uh, novelization of his movie, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, there is a, uh, a reference to uh, Jim Stacy and his favorite director, and his favorite director is Robert Butler. Wow. Uh, had you heard that? Stacy said that, huh? That, oh. Well, in, in Quentin Tarantino's uh, uh, um, world, he did. I don't know if he said it in real life or if that was a fanciful extrapolation by Tarantino. But I, uh, I was reading the book last week on the, uh, the on the plane and came across that and was delighted. That's great! Wow. How was <laughs> how how? Speaking of, you know, obviously Lancer is very much. Uh, in vogue now, thanks to the Tarantino movie. How was your experience doing Lancer? Do you remember, uh, you know, was it just another Western or was there something unique about it? It was a good one, a good experience. Here's the look of another winner this fall on CBS. Lancer, exciting new adventure drama filmed against breathtaking outdoor locales in the American West. Lancer brings you thrilling action and spectacle. Stirring conflict and drama in the saga of a cattle empire and the men who fought for it. The story of a family name that became a legend. Uh, Mr. Lancer? That's me, yeah. You're Johnny. That's right. Then you're Scott Lancer. No, ma'am. He's no Lancer. My mother only had one kid, and that was me. Likewise. Oh, well, we didn't expect you both at the same time, but... But actually, you're right. It's Mr. Lancer that had two. Two? What? Wives. And sons. You two. And uh, I remember Andy, the, the patron of the show, hated to ride, so we had to help him just have been on the horse. Just having been on the, on the horse. Right. Goodbye. And Stacy had pulled his act together. He was really an orderly, ideal leading man, which is where some, where much of the attitude of the show originates. 
the way that leading guy handles himself. And uh, James had, had really turned the right corner at that point because it was a completely positive and just a good experience. Yeah, there's a whole paragraph in the book about how a lot of TV directors are like traffic cops, but then there are a few who are the really you know great artists of which you were one of the the the, the people mentioned. So uh, it's 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 nice nice to, nice to see that kind of uh, uh, attention. I got to ask you because you know somebody like Hitchcock gets associated with one genre and becomes kind of a household name, master of suspense, but you worked in so many different genres. You were so facile with comedy and with drama and with Westerns, and you might not like to admit it, but science fiction. So um, what was there a genre that really jumped out to you as your favorite, or did you like the diversity of, 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 of shows that you did? There wasn't a favorite. There wasn't a favorite style or type or genre at all. I loved the idea of scene making, that's mm-hmm. that's our that's our silver. That's our scene making is what I think I was done. But scene making, pardon me, scene making is what I think I did most and looked at it that way. There's this unit, two people in a room for three pages. That's a scene. Another scene is on the pier in Santa Monica, where you have to have many, many opportunities and challenges. But any, anyway, that's, our, that's our, our change. That's what we deal in, and that's what I like, scene making. Once upon a time, there were four bears. Four? What do you mean? Oh, I see, you, you like, but isn't that too much symmetry? Don't we like the, the, the theoretical asymmetry of three as opposed to the duplication of pairs in four? That, that's what I responded to. Once upon a time, there was, and you'd go to work right then. Right. You, you maybe, maybe help the title. Star Trek. Gene, Gene, isn't Star Trek more interesting? Isn't Star Trek a voyage? Doesn't the ambition come in there? Isn't that a better title? Well, I still think it is. But Gene <laughs> didn't think it wasn't. He just, he couldn't hear anything except his own head at yeah. that point in his right. life, which is the right way to be. If you're the showrunner, producer, creator, writer, it's right of you not to be able to even hear anything else except your own vision, your own knowledge, your own once upon a time. Well, let me take you back because obviously a lot of people who got their start on the East coast, you know, would be NBC pages. You got your start on the West coast as a uh, a CBS television city. Tell us a little bit about making that move from breaking into the business and becoming a, a director, because once you started behind the camera, you never stopped for, you know, (laughs) <laughs> five decades. Yeah, you're right about that. Once I started, I never stopped. I must give the credit to the live television procedure. It was theater with cameras. That's what it was. Right. 
and it inherited certain certain aristocracies. I mean, theater was superior. Theater was more academic. Theater was more literary. That was believed in those days. And as we rehearsed, as I worked for different directors in live television and saw what they did in bringing up and out the character and the specificity and the power and the strength and the force, as I saw all of that, it registered and stayed with me. So what Stacy and others were talking about was my paying attention to them, them as actors, them as characters, them as the main purveyor of the whole yarn. That came from TV City and live television and the necessity of doing take one. That's what you're doing in live television. You're doing take one. Right. So you prepare for that ultimate time when you deliver. You have rehearsals, you have run-throughs, you have run-throughs faster, just as an exercise, etc. cetera. Uh, I must give the final nod for, for that apparent interest in, in actors' characters that apparent fascination with character, actor, as originating in live television. Yeah. That's the way it was done. That's the way it was best, best done. That's the only way it was done because five, four, three, two, one, and it's for real. That's the original experience and a very strong one, I realize now. Do you think the medium lost anything when it moved away from live television and kinescopes to film? Uh, was the, the, the tight wire act of shooting live TV was lost? Uh, was it less exciting in any way for you uh, when, when, the, when it changed to film? Well, it was less exciting externally. I mean, there's mm. no lump in the no, there, there's no constant lump in the throat. Every time we went on the air as an AD in live television, the AD assistant director or social director was very much a co-pilot. So he would count down the five, four, three, two, one, and man, you are alive. Yeah. And I used to get a lump in my throat every time I counted down. That excitement did not happen in that way on film, but Film is more able, more muscular, more physical, more external, plus the internal. So no, it wasn't a loss, the internal, because I brought it with me, apparently. Yeah. But it was the addition of all that exteriority in film, because you could see the dirigible explode. And boy, film has always done the external reality better than anything else. I mean, when you see Boulder Dam explode, it really looks like a truthful, honest documentary representation of Boulder Dam exploding. That we owe to film. Film does that better than anything else. Spe speaking on that a little bit, um, can you talk a little bit about the difference 
between working with different types of actors? Because um, early on, you were dealing with a lot of uh, stage-bound actors, and uh, perhaps they had to, uh, or you had to adapt their styles to the, the closeness of television. Um, but then later, there became uh, other actors that maybe didn't have so much stage experience, but did have camera experience. And how was it to sort of balance all those, you know, styles? Well, the question is very aware because the answer to it is you speak a different lingo with every actor and every department head and every technician on the set. You speak a different language to each of those people. Right. It's amazing to me in pertinent answer to your question to know, to realize that this person next to me was miles away. And this person away next to me was hundreds of yards away. Everybody is working from his and her personal hit. That's, that's who and what they are. And you as a director have to ascertain in a split second who that person is in terms of that technical prowess. And yes, it's, it's just a big, it's, a, it's it's chop suey, man. It's every different kind of thing you can imagine, all clustered into one unit. And each person has his and her preoccupations. They don't care about the person next to them, a mile away or 100 yards away. They care about themselves in this operation. And the director has to forego for, what does he do? He he cuts beyond that. The director has to jump beyond that into the contribution that that person is making to that show. The prop guy, I mean, man, that, that box of milk, that period waxed box of milk is his livelihood. And when he shows it to the director, it's gotta be right for the director. So he and his world and his wax milk carton are as important to him as Angela Lansbury's character is to her. You speak the different languages. Incidentally, that isn't so far out an idea because lately I've been reading and find that in a few Indian tribes across the United States, the, the two genders spoke two different languages. So in a in a, in a given family, in a given tribe, the men spoke a language and the women spoke a language. That's wild. So we're tribal. We directors are tribal aware, I guess. Well, sometimes it, it, it becomes your job to interpret for everyone and be the, and be the conduit for everyone's efforts, right? Yes, it is. And I feel that my, my biggest objective is to protect the audience. Make it as clear and as believable and simple and strong and overwhelming, invisibly, visibly as possible. Right. Invisibly, visibly. That's the trick. They know the, they know the blood is ketchup. They've been to a, more movies than I'll ever know about. They know that, and yet they're willing to go and pretend with us that it's, that it's blood and not ketchup. Right. 
when, so individualized, so specific, and such a such an illusion. How how can we? I mean, excuse me for going off. No, please do. Yeah. But it amazes me that we can go in there together and pretend in unison that the ketchup is blood. How can that happen? That's really phenomenal. Because it's fun. Because it's, it's fun. Because people love hearing stories and being transported by that. Once upon a time, there were five bears. Five <laughs> bears. Gee, that's in the budget. What if there were three? I mean, that director who played that scene that I just played was worth immense amounts of dollars by cutting his main cast from five to three. Think of the, the, the money he saves in year 12. Right. <laughs> well, and it's also, in addition to, to, to paying less bears, it's less coverage. You don't have to cover all five bears and give them all singles. So you're spending less time on your schedule as well as on your cast. So uh, can we get it down to two bears? <laughs> because if, if, there was, if there was a wider perception in the, in the acting area, they would know when the camera was not favoring them and they would start to raise hell about it. <laughs> They are so far into their necessary false reality as the director is in, into his that they don't notice that or they're, they're overwhelmed by other matters, let's say. Well, before you became a pilot director, you were sort of what they call a journeyman director, going from show to show. Um, but you worked on some really incredible series. I'm a huge fan of Have Gun, Will Travel, which you did, of course, El Paso Stage, which I assume is also where you first met Gene uh, on Have Gun. If uh, Again, it's so long ago. I don't even know. It, 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 and it's one in, in hundreds of episodes of television you directed. But if you remember anything about that. Well, it must have been... The beginning of Gene, in my knowledge, was the lieutenant, mm -hmm. Harry Lockwood. He was a Marine lieutenant based down the coast here, supposedly. Right. Yeah, Camp Pendleton. Met Gene, of course, to get that first, I think, two-episode directing job. And it went very well, and, and it was a really good experience. And Jim, uh, Gene was, Gene at that time was, a green showrunner. They didn't use the term then. Right. But I was aware that Roddenberry, as an ex-policeman, was green. He was a new guy in town, as I was. So maybe I, maybe I found a sympathy there, or a, I, I don't really know. But he was a very easy guy to get along with. Well, well, it can't be Gene objecting to anything you said yet on the phone there. <laughs> That's true. I, I remember him as a very affable, easy guy. And uh, when the Star Trek pilot came along, I was flattered, but not much more because I was indeed busy moving from show to show, experience to experience, all in the scene promulgating business. That's what I did. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I worked with scenes and fixed scenes and then assembled scenes. 
and put them together in a show. So that that coin that was scenes became shows. Well, I want to ask you about I Spy at that time, too, because that was a very different kind of production. Uh, they would go on location in Europe, and it was more like a feature uh, as opposed to what television was at the time. Do you remember working on I Spy and, and, and if that felt uh, uh, yeah. was it was a unique experience for you? I drew in some episodes that, that were in Italy. So mm-hmm. we were home and, and uh, well, we were basically in Rome. And uh, no, that was a great experience. Uh, the camera, the camera work was by a very young guy who was chosen by Sheldon Leonard very specifically for that show. So. It was run and gun, gun and run. And mm-hmm. it was an original experience and not less or more like television or film or anything. It was really quite separate, the way it ran and the way it worked. And uh, Copen Cosby got very strong, very fast. So everything was tailored and everything followed their pattern and their desires. And their decisions, really. And uh, I remember Sheldon was very easy and very on the periphery of, of all the work that we did, all the shots we shot. I, I, I learned an immense lesson on I Spy. We had, a, we had a scene to shoot on the train that we were taking from... Rome elsewhere. And we did the wide shot, which is what it was. And we went to the close-ups and the close-ups were shaking just like that. So the decision is to go even on a wider lens closer to remove the shake or to just shoot. And the, the verdict was always shoot, man, shoot. (laughs) and as often as possible. So my heart sank, and I knew I'd be out of business once I delivered shaky close-ups. And bonus, big golden bonus, it brought reality. We, the viewer, were on that train. And holy cow, there was no negativity. It was all gold. Wow. These are the lessons that would pave the way for Hill Street Blues for you, but we'll we'll get to that in a, in a while. <laughs> it's the same issue. It's the same issue. Yeah. The, the, the Hill Street cameraman would come up to me and say, "Like you said, it's pretty ugly." Said, <laughs> like I'm saying again, make it uglier. Yeah. We had that scene over and over and over again, and you're right. It began between. Rome, between Rome and our first stop. Wow. Where we had to change trains. That was, <laughs> was only, it wasn't only the trip, it was the changing of trains that was coming up soon that was in that decision. Huh. Does it surprise you, because you worked on Mission Impossible also, 
but that Mission Impossible seems to be the show that's more enduring. But that was basically shot on the back lot, you know, or in L.A., whereas I Spy was actually, you know, in Europe and all these glamorous locales. And I Spy, Cosby aside, hasn't been the enduring show in the way that Mission Impossible is. Does, does that at all surprise you? No, because I Spy took tremendous courage to make it uglier in quotes takes takes a lot of courage i i guess i'm blowing my own horn there but <laughs> uh, i i it was my belief and it has always been my belief we like too much and we talk too much i'm trying mm. to use fewer words and less light that's from the outset there were there were other terms through my, through the years, there were other terms, but it's the basic truth. Talk less and see a little less. Mm -hmm. See a lot less, but take it down. Give it back to the audience. Let them do the work. Yeah. So you're bumping heads with your DPs and your, and your, and your showrunners because they wanted to hear their pristine words and the DPs wanted to light it more. <laughs> That's a part of the interpretation and the, and the different in languages. And that being a mile away from the guy next to you, the guy next to you is a classic cameraman. He wants Hollywood lovely. Right. I don't want Hollywood lovely. I want to get rid of Hollywood lovely. <laughs> well, he's going to make less concessions than I am. Let's face it. Right. And, uh, you just keep the secret. That's all. You don't tell anybody what you're doing because yeah. if you're wrong, also, if you're wrong, no one will know but you. Right. So it doesn't matter. Right. It doesn't matter. It's up to you. That's why, I mean, I, I think philosophically and in, in the truistic sense, that's why directing is so individual. It doesn't matter that it's that it's special and super. It only matters that it's singular. It's one person. No more than one person says, once upon a time, there were six bearers. One <laughs> person says that, and that's the director. He's the storyteller. And when, whenever I teach to carry this arrogance even further, whenever we, whenever I teach, I, I say to the directorial students, you're entitled. You're entitled because we were there first. We were there before religion, before science, before magic. Before magic, we were there before, we were there before language. We yeah. were there first. First, you didn't say once upon a time. You just said, Ogdiba. And you got it. Ugdi ba. Anyway, I'm getting a little crazy. But in reality, one consistent, persistent, knowledgeable, tasty, graceful view is what you should have on a picture. You're trying to make everybody conform to that, that need that the audience has to understand every look, every word, you're, you're helping the audience. That, that's who you're working for. Right. 
to get them to understand the clarity of the situation, the truth, and the emotions. Absolutely. A lot of people don't realize the most important decision that a showrunner can make is who they hire to direct their pilot because they're setting the tone for the whole show, which will hopefully not go 13, but go five, six, seven years. And in the 60s, you did three of the most iconic um, pilots uh, series, uh, really, uh, 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 you know, of, of the decade. You not only did Hogan's Heroes and, and you did, um, of course, uh, uh, Star Trek, which we know, uh, but also um, of the Batman pilot. The 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 um, those are a Batman pod. So I wonder before we get to Star Trek, you know, let, I'd love to hear your thoughts on Hogan's Heroes because, of course, Hogan's Heroes is a show I mean, uh, we grew up on in repeats, which we always loved. You know, now people are like, my God, this was twenty years after the Holocaust, and they're making a a, a comedy about um, uh, uh, you know American prisoners of war. But we love, I mean, it's, it, it's a great show. It's hysterical. And Bob Crane and Richard Dawson and that whole cast is wonderful. Can you talk a little bit about getting involved with that and doing Hogan's Heroes? Already on your call, Colonel. All right, kids. Mama Bear, this is Goldilocks. Come in, Goldilocks, this is Mama Bear. That bowl of porridge is getting too hot to hold. Pick up three hours earlier. Will do, Goldilocks. Roger, over and out. Get me Sidney Carton. Right. not play games. There are people here from Berlin. There will be a roll call, and it will not be enough to have 15 men. They must be the same 15 men I always have. Please, <laughs> Hogan. Don't be a bookkeeper. Is Olsen back? No, but we're expecting. Only expecting. <laughs> Hogan, how do I look? I got the civilian suit on under my uniform. I see nothing. <laughs> Don't worry, Schultz. We're expecting. <laughs> yeah, I, I was really hired at the last minute. My agent said, I'm gonna get you, I'm gonna get you a job. And coincident with some extra effort on his part, he found the pilot to Hogan's Heroes. At which point they were in pre-production. And I guess the director froze. I mm. guess he was not as experienced as he had led himself to be, whatever. But he froze and became necessarily replaceable. Timing, bingo, that's how I got the job. And 
but I didn't know much about it. And the characters were just good young guys, just good guys. And if anybody was a little less than a good guy, the other five or six would bury him, absolutely bury him. Mm. There wasn't any room for arrogance or shenanigans or, or that real divisive. There wasn't room for that. Mm -hmm. And that was good because I wanted less talk and less <laughs> and more roughness. So we fit together very well. And the producer was a very, very savvy guy, Eddie Feldman. Mm -hmm. He knew how to run a show and knew when to save us from ourselves and when not. Uh, it was a very positive experience and very free in a way. It didn't seem difficult. When I see some of that work, now I'm amazed that I knew that I knew enough to do what I did rather than what I almost did. Right. <laughs> anyway, good experience. Run, run by a guy who knew what he was doing. When you say you what you did as opposed to what you almost did, what were you almost what 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 was that alternative approach going to be? Well, the walls would be cleaner. The walls wouldn't be aged down. Right, because it was brand new building. Yeah. You, you know, a Hollywood prison camp. Yeah. I mean, that, that you've got it right there. Hollywood prison camp. Mm -hmm. That's what those guys are trained to do. All yeah. those technicians are trained to do pretty. I mean, they do pretty better than anyone, anywhere, in yeah. any medium or event. That's what the heritage is in Hollywood. The hairdressing. The makeup. We've all heard the French actress in American in Paris. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. I can't think of her name. She kept screaming about all the makeup on her, and she kept taking down, down, down. Anyway, we we bested American in Paris. We were uglier than. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and, and to this day, you know, when people say I know nothing, they still think of John Banner and Schultz. So uh, definitely a, a, a long another one of your shows that has stood the test of time. And of course, you know, Batman is a show that still delights people the world over. You defined for what a, a comic book TV show was for decades. And uh, it's it's a classic. Um and that you, I assume you came in earlier on. So you had more time to uh, sort of figure out what your approach was going to be with the Dutch dangles and the bright colors and uh, uh, that, 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 you know, that pilot and just, you know, playing yeah. completely straight. I was, a, I was a late hire on, on Batman too. Oh, wow. Mosey up the back way. Batman speaking. <laughs> this is a recording. Before you trip over your cape, Batman, riddle me this. There are three men in a boat with four cigarettes but no matches. How do they manage to smoke? Hmm? <laughs> Riddler. 
What the heck's he trying to tell us? I don't know. Let's go up and ask him. Hold it, Riddler. The game's up, Riddler. As a duly deputized agent of the law, I place you under arrest for armed robbery. Snap on the bat cuffs. You've got me, Batman. <laughs> what the? <laughs> it's too delicious. I even gave you a tip-off. Batman, you've made a mistake. He didn't steal that cross. What? I tell you, it belongs to him. He lent it to me for a show. But, Mr. Peel, we saw him take it from you at gunpoint. Gunpoint? He did tip us off. <laughs> there were three men in a boat with four cigarettes and no matches. How did they manage to smoke? They threw one cigarette overboard and made the boat a cigarette lighter. You saw him giving me a light as I handed back his cross. Out riddled. I thought you might be, Batman. That's why I brought witnesses with cameras. Oh, what is it that no man wants to have, yet no man wants to lose? A lawsuit. Correct. Boy wonder. <laughs> How I've waited for this. It makes my whole life worthwhile. <laughs> After you've chewed over this one for a while, look for two more. Adios, amigos. See you in court. The, the writer was one of, one of my best friends at the time, so I don't think there was any competition. I don't know why that was the case, but I was a late hire, and... Uh, it's maybe one of the best scripts I've ever been involved with. I mean, he contrives his plots like artichokes. You have to reach, you have to, oh, I blew it. You, you have to go through spiny leaves to reach the heart. That's correct. <laughs> it's a verb. I don't remember the verb. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Anyway, that's Lorenzo. Yeah. Now, that's not exactly a joke, but it sure ain't reality. That was really terrific. Well, the, the casting on that was amazing. I mean, Adam West apparently knew exactly how to play that, just sort of borderline comedy and borderline serious. But he was so, he, he did that almost effortlessly, it looked like. Yeah. Um, and in, in that pilot, uh, uh, Frank Gorshin is really scary. He's, he's like a psychotic. Gorshin is an ideal example of directing when you don't have to direct at all. Right. You don't say a word except print. That's right. all you say. <laughs> Loss him up. Give him, give him the lock. Give him the trailer. Give him everything. Yeah. Let him do what he's doing. He's saving all our lives. He's our lifeboat. Yeah. Print. 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 
terrific, terrific guy. We had worked together before, and he just, I mean, all that giddiness. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> it, was, it was great. Between him and the other characters, it was just great. I stole a scene from one of the great English classics when, when they're in the commissioner's office having a big meeting about what to do about the Riddler. You know, there's a big conference table. Right. Just as, just as we use less light and fewer words, never, never sit at a conference table. I mean, I've, I've done many conference table scenes, so I've been there too. But please don't sit in the chairs around the, the, the conference table. So I got them up on their feet, obviously, and they're pacing like a scene from the idol, yeah, the fallen idol. Ah. Carol Reed. Yep. There's a scene, a half a minute long, where the young boy, the young nine-year-old, nine is just kind of wandering around the crime scene, and like three or four detectives, English detectives, are following him, just, just slowly following him. So the scene never stops. It tiptoes, it tiptoes, it tiptoes, dictated in that instance by the nine-year-old. Right. So that's what I did. I got them moving. Everybody's moving, but not in trepidation that you're going to wreck the kid in fear that you're not going to solve the problem of the Riddler. So right. let's be careful. Let's be quiet. Let's think this through. Let's, yes, that's right. No, but on the other hand, yes, you're right, Commissioner. I just, I stole the staging and it took forever to lay out this constant restlessness. And it was really, it was really good, if I may say. Absolutely, because, <laughs> you because as, you're, as you're following him around, you're bringing the audience with you. Absolutely. In fact, when I teach, I tell the guys restlessness. Restlessness brings reality. Yeah. Restlessness. Restlessness. <laughs> and it does. And that, that was, I mean, Carol Reed did it. So if he did it, I could do it. And we did. And it was a terrific scene. Yeah. Anyway. So once you, you do a pilot of a show like that, and then you come back later on to do episodes, is it? Is the thrill gone, or do you still find something exciting about doing doing the show at that point? Well, excitement, excitement, love is back because you're the guy who got them onto the air. Yeah, part in part. Let's face it, in part. But when they see you, I did. I went back and did some Mill Streets episodes, and I was kind of, I was kind of fearful about the shorter schedule. And then, you know, the, the television grind. But as soon as they saw me, they relaxed. And they would have jumped off bridges for me. And, and as soon as they saw me relax and begin to jump off bridges, they relaxed more. So it was completely homogeneous. It was just smooth and wonderful. Excitement? No. No, there's no excitement here. There's just adoration. 
in space. <laughs> well, let's let's talk about that third uh, pilot of, of the 60s, uh, Star Trek. Um, you had mentioned, of course, that you did two episodes of Lieutenant where you met Gene, and that was a good experience. But things, you know, with the cage were challenging because there was no, you know, the Westerns you came on, you could compare it to other Westerns. Other shows, you could say, okay, there have been movies or TV shows. Like Star Trek was really unique. It wasn't going to be like, you know, Captain Video or, or any of those things. They were trying to do something completely new. And so I know, you, you know, you had your perspective. Bob Justman has perspective. I'm sure Herb Solo had his perspective and Gene had his. So, you know, how much of a challenge was that first pilot and, you know, what do you feel worked about it? And, you know, looking back, what do you feel maybe didn't? Before Kirk, there was another captain of the Enterprise. My name is Christopher Pike, commander of the space vehicle Enterprise. Witness the first voyage. Mr. Spock here. And relive the mission. Let me please you. That launched the entire Trek universe. Try anything at all. Break your neck. Your ship will destroy it. Star Trek. Gene was a new producer, and of course he created the show. So he was on it, so to say, from the get-go. And many things were in work, and many decisions had been made by him, the showrunner, creator, Hada Hada. So the groove was set. I couldn't get him to... I couldn't get him to change his title, so, which is you know, two words or one. It's one word. So it's likely, it's not likely that I would, would, one, would win many of the arguments. It's not likely that I would win many of the arguments. So, but I was green enough, I was green enough that I wasn't aware of that. Hmm. And there is the inevitable economizer drill that the, that the director must fight against because in economizing, the quality disappears and the Hollywood tradition reappears. Right. And that makes it less specific and less original. But I didn't know that all the time. So Gene, by my mistaken greenery and his own, allowed himself to be taken by the Hollywood tradition through that show. That's why it's very clean, very neat. There's no wear on the walls whatsoever. But he he wanted it that way and or didn't know better. And mm. I tried but failed and didn't really, weren't really aware of this battle that goes on about money. Because from the directorial standpoint, and that isn't the only standpoint that's valid, I, I must admit, it's, it's serving the audience. And it's that clarity and strength in what you're giving to the audience. That's the master. So when, when we hear that directors are insane and arrogant, I hope they aren't. I hope they're just trying to help the audience understand and be demonstrated appropriately to whether that's even remotely possible. 
no idea. The experience was a whirl of new experiences. I remember when they first got to got to the, the neighboring planet, there was there was a sequence where nobody said a word for a while. They were on they were on this new planet and they were looking at new plants and new environments. And it was kind of terrific. And you really felt that you were with them on a new experience and a new excursion. I remember that, I remember that specifically as being a good overture, inner overture to, to the whole show. What was your feeling about Jeff Hunter? Um, and was that sort of a network decision? Were you involved in, uh, in, in Jeff's hiring at all or any of the uh, supporting cast? Or was that uh, you know, purely network and gene? Uh, no knowledge whatsoever. He was set before I was. Mm -hmm. As I said, I was a late hire. And uh, I, I was aware that he had, had worked with the best. He had had an early great career. And I wondered if he felt he was set settling or if he just wanted to stay at home more i i just passed lightly over that and didn't trouble him or me with it as far as the working goes he was hollywood trained i mean he did what the director wanted and or brought the character as he saw it to the scene that was what he was a working Finished professional, yeah. uh, good guy, had to do some things that, that, I, that I really sympathize about. Because Glean, Gene, in his greenness, and me and mine, mine were wrong a few secret times. I remember that Jeff has to test a glass wall by throwing himself against it. Well... Every, every writer, when he's green, writes some version of the glass wall. That's really kind of an awful moment where he gets furious that he's caged and throws himself against the wall. And it bounces and the reflections tremble. Right. tremble. And the production people all think that's wonderful because without that, you wouldn't see the reflections tremble and you wouldn't be as aware. As a matter of fact, I just justified that in a way, but that isn't what Gene was thinking, I, I think. He was being green, as I was. There was also the dangerous monster. He had written <laughs> more than one, as I now remember, more than one dangerous monster our hero gets in a fight with the dangerous monster. Well, your director didn't know enough about dangerous monsters and a useful set from another job that supposedly looked like a, an abandoned futuristic town. An abandoned futuristic town. You mean you just found that in the back? Is that correct? <laughs> yeah, it looked great. Oh, okay, okay. Okay, that stunt guy 
and your director and your production people who were convinced that, that would look great by production people. I mean, the budget production people. Right. We were wrong. Man, those are, those are not great moments, but Gene must have had, did have, let's face it, some line to the people where that was, that was moved aside by the audience. The audience was more affected by the good stuff than it was by the questionable stuff. So Gene had some, he had some connection with the people. And in the look of some of those guest characters in later episodes, mm. the guy with four eyes, I'm exaggerating. I don't know what they did, but they, <laughs> they, had, to, they had to introduce for the audience new, new sports of humanism, I, I guess. Sure. It got a little strange at times, I, I think. But that's, that's the critical side. The good side is Gene had this, had this once upon a time, there was space. Once upon a time, there was space. Things went on in space that we had no knowledge of. That's what he did right. and very, very well. I've sort of forgotten the sort of forgotten the question, but I didn't know much about science fiction. I didn't know the usual tricks mm -hmm. or the, the tricks that are often used in in uh, science fiction. So I was green and unaware at that time of what I'm telling you now to that degree. Uh, I don't. I don't think that. I don't think that that's a. Uh, that's a downfall, frankly. I think that that is one of the things that made it more accessible to people, in that it wasn't treated like a science fiction show. It was. It was a drama. It was a. You know, the closest thing to at the time. It was sort of a western, just with a different background. Yeah, I've. I've. I've heard that. I've heard that said before. And I didn't know it at the time. Yeah. I just didn't know it, which is maybe, maybe freshness. Maybe my ignorance became fresh, freshness in Gene's material. I think that's definitely a factor. It, it, but we're discovering that the mysteries are great. How do you reach them? How do you know to reach them? And I mean, that's what we're dealing with. Yeah. How do you support them? How are you clear for them when you're not quite totally clear yourself? Right. One of the Goldman said in Hollywood, no one knows anything. Yeah. That's yeah. what he means. We're discussing that right now. Absolutely. What is, it, what is it that puts us in the dark believing? We're in the dark and we believe, man. If yeah. we didn't believe, it wouldn't be there. So something, someone, some combination of stuff works for them. What is that? It's part of what you just said, but I want the, I want, I want the, the golden answer. What's yeah. the <laughs> Like they say, 
No one knows. Yeah. Well, it's funny. You talk about the William Goldman axiom. Nobody knows anything. I mean, who would have thought 55 years after you were on set, uh, you know, you're still being asked about this, uh, this pilot, you know, that, that you shot, you know, a half a century ago. It's extraordinary. Um, this mistitled this title. Right, right, right. <laughs> 50 years. Um, I do want to ask you, because you talk about something that was, you didn't have a lot of experience with, was visual effects at the time. And not a lot of people did. They were mostly being done in features. You didn't see this on a TV. Was that something that, um, you, you know, you, you really educated yourself about, or did you look at, uh, you know, maybe genre features like forbidden planet, or was it something where you really just trusted your post people? Or do you, do you remember how, because it was such a huge amount of visual effects, uh, you know, for, for this one hour of television. Uh, there were, I think there weren't that many. It's good that we think there were many, mm. but I don't think there were the, the vanishing of someone is a good trick and it works every time you, you use it. You know, beam me up, beam me down. That, that works very, very well. And it's just, okay, clear the set. Don't move the camera. Yeah. And of course you do it editorially. Sure. It, I don't know, it's a, it's a signpost. It kind of helps. You enjoy the trick. Yeah. You know that it's a trick. Because you know the blood is ketchup. Right. So you're in on it. You're, that, may, that may be in the formula too, being in on it. I don't really know. But it wasn't very different. It wasn't very different to me. More limiting. I felt a limiting, the cleanliness. I tried to help. And I just I couldn't get anywhere. Right. You were ahead of your time. George Lucas, 10 years later, said, let's make Star Wars dirty and old. And uh, clearly that worked. I mean, how dare you do otherwise? That's Gene, man. Even yeah. in the grave, he's rich, right? That's right. <laughs> um, I got to ask you, because we talked, you talked about how um, Jeff Hunter was a pro. Uh, obviously, having worked with people like John Ford and, and had this this long career, what did, what were your impressions of uh, people like like Susan Oliver and John Hoyt? Do you remember, you know, any thoughts about the the rest of the cast? I, I remember the the, the John Hoyt hire is very de definitely an anecdote because Gene wanted the actor who wound up playing Bones, <laughs> D. Kelly, right. I, I didn't know that. I mean, I knew that actor professionally, but I didn't know him. And I, my reasoning was that he and Jeff were a little bit similar. I mean, they did, didn't look alike, but as, as leading men in a show, they would be competitors. And I thought it was an unwise idea to clutter and that's my verb, not, not Gene's, because he got a lot of good use. And I would have to ask you why Bones worked with with uh, Bill Shatner. D. Kelly, and why he worked with Shatner, right? There were two leading men on the show, or weren't there? Maybe, maybe the director had it wrong, and he just won the argument. But I mm -hmm. thought it was great. And in yeah. that first scene between the two of them, He's very natural and, and supplies a good support of the captain. 
which, yeah. you know, you need. I mean, that's a very valid character. Mm-hmm. Well, so again, that, that's, I mean, that is a scene right out of Gunsmoke with Matt Dillon talking with uh, 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 the doc, you know, that's, uh, yeah, that's the, right. the, the, the surroundings are different, but the core of the scene is exactly the same. And that's right. what comes through. And that's our, that's our, uh, our hook that we understand that. Yes. And we understand a wearied hero, a mm-hmm. inefficient hero, a dangerous hero because right. he has enough to enough. I mean, that guy gets our sympathy really well. Yeah. Yeah. And he, he did it. He did it terrific. I thought he was a wonderful actor. I mean, if you're ideal looking in Hollywood, you're, you're written as usual Hollywood somehow. You're given yeah. less credit. And Jeff was very, very good. I mean, I, I did help him in certain ways and at certain times. He was a finished actor. He was a finished pro at that yeah. time. And of course, and, gorgeous. So he gets knocked a little bit, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, you talk about somebody who was green at the time, both literally and figuratively. And of course, that was Leonard Nimoy. Um, and, you know, the, throughout the pilot, it seems like, you know, he's still trying to find this, this character. Do you remember working with Leonard and sort of, you're trying to define what Spock is or would be? Yeah, I do. It, I, I had used, I have used that direction a number of times. Be a technician. You, I mean, that's, that's shorthand between the two of us, the three of us. But what you're trying to do is make him as unemotional as possible. So what I did to Leonard at one point is say in terms, you're you're like a technician. You're like a you're like a facts. You're like a a, a facts uh, facts gatherer. You're you're a scientist. Be a scientist. Right. That's all. Just be technical. He Leonard gave me credit years later for that. I wouldn't know that this was in Antioch, except he wrote somewhere that. The director helped him by saying, be a scientist. That's mm-hmm. all you are. You're a scientist with very, very le- much less humanism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I remember that, that very clearly. And uh, I mean, once you've got it in your own mind directorially for the audience, it, it's so long as you get the right hook and the right you hit upon the right shorthand with the actor, it goes well. But that's what you're trying to do. You're trying to invent a language with the actor, with each of the actors that you can use to help him, her, Mm -hmm. his, her voyage. Well, Gene gave you a gift with Susan Oliver, but at the same time, he also gave you Majel, which uh, uh, we, we, <laughs> obviously the network in retrospect wasn't thrilled with uh, knowing uh, their relationship at the time. So uh, can you talk a little bit about those, the two of them and if you recall anything unique about uh, directing them or uh, the challenges that uh, they're in? I, I didn't know any of the story at the time, mm. of course. Uh, Major 
Major Lenjean probably met on the pilot. I don't know that. But in any case, later I knew they were an item. Uh, she was a finished actor because she was strong and simple and appropriate. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't remember, other than the usual support, I don't remember any specifics. Yeah. Well, I, I think that with Susan Oliver, she was a chameleon. I mean, Susan Oliver had to play the Green Orion slave girl, and then she's playing sort of the, the adoring housewife in a sense, and then she's, she's yeah. playing this, uh, uh, um, you know, this, this survivor, this Robinson Crusoe. I mean, I, I thought that was a really wonderful performance. And there's another actor who just went from show to show, but you really seem to know exactly what to do with her. Well, it, it was good. I knew her slightly from TV City. She had been in a number of the, the live shows, mm -hmm. Climax and Studio One, whatever. She was a, a well-known coming actress. And uh, I think I remember that she tended to intellectualize, over-intellectualize. And so my job was get, to get her to relax, you know, the ball players, the ball players, Kurt Russell as the next ball player. Mm -hmm. was relaxation. That's what they do. That's what they force on themselves. So I, I think I helped her. And maybe just the idea that I was there trying to help helped because she was serious about her acting in, in, a, in a live theatrical way. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, and she was stuck with the green girl, of course. Yeah. And that, that's, that's like the green girl is another example. And it's done well in pictures when you see her. But, but we didn't do it very well. Make a person green. What about the nostrils, Charlie? Who's going to get the nostrils? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, well, <laughs> how to do it. If you're going to deliver to them, if you're going to tell them you're trying to be true, Harry the nostrils. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I don't know. These things that you don't think about. Well, but, you know, you were making these for 19, 27 inch color TVs. Half the audience was watching in black and white. You didn't think 50 years later it'd be in 4K projected on movie screens uh, when you were <laughs> directing these. I mean, who would have thought? <laughs> um, were you much involved in post or was that pretty much? Oh, go ahead. Sorry, Bob. Funny. They'll never notice that. Harry, <laughs> they'll never notice. <laughs> they noticed everything. They 50 years to pick it apart. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And it so happens that Gene was stronger than the nostrils. That's the bottom line. <laughs> yeah, and Harry and the nostrils. <laughs> yeah, well, look, I mean, again, another very iconic scene. I mean, it, the, you use that image of the green girl at the end of the of the show every week, and uh, it's still something that uh, yeah. uh, continues to resonate. So, you know, whatever your qualms with it were at the time, it, it seems to have worked. 
I mean, maybe it's arrogance. You know, maybe there was never any green girl in theater. I don't know. <laughs> or, or, or maybe people just aren't watching her nose. Pardon me? Maybe. Or, or maybe people just aren't watching her nose. <laughs> Gene has them. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, that's true. And it's funny, later I realized she was, she was a spy. That's what she was. Her disguise was a young girl, and she was an agent sent, mm -hmm. sent back to spy on the, the hero. I didn't, I didn't tell her that. She certainly must have done something like, like that herself. Yeah. Mm. Interesting. Were you much involved in post or once you wrap, were you pretty much done? I mean, I, you know, now the DGA gives um, obviously directors their cut and then they go away and the showrunner uh, can finish. But were you involved in seeing this through to post or were, were you done when you wrapped? No, I, I wasn't involved in post. In mm -hmm. fact, the tradition at the time was to leave the show. Right. Mm -hmm. The process at the Guild was the belief that you got to do the whole job, which is to oversee or at least contribute in all the areas. So yeah. I came to that, but I didn't really know about it then. John Houston was a famous example of yeah. no post-production. He just didn't do it. When mm. he played the last live moment, he figured he was gone, and he was. Right. Really? So Maltese Falcon, African Queen, these are all things he wasn't involved in post-production? That's, that's my knowledge. Well, mm. I mean, you, you've got some orientation, too, so it may, it may need a rewrite. Just... <laughs> <laughs> Okay, fair enough. Um, so you chose not to go back and do the Menagerie, which was the two-part episode that used your pilot footage. Um, was it a lack of availability, lack of interest? Uh, what, what prompted you to sort of uh, say no to that? Just that I'd been there. Mm -hmm. It would be the same thing, and I've done that. So what's new? Mm -hmm. It's yep. just simple as that. Jim, Jim Goldstone is what well, was a very good director, a competitor. He got some good features, which I did not do. Uh, what, a computer wears tennis shoes and barefoot? I mean, these are movies that have stood the test of time. I mean, I've taken my kids to see them at the New Beverly, and they love them. And Withdraw him, Eugene. I beg your pardon? If you had an ounce of integrity, you'd withdraw him. Withdraw who? That boy. Well, it's unfair. He's an intellectual freak. Now, oh, Dean Collins, you could control yourself. I know how you feel, but you can't win them all. And unfortunately, this year, Medfield has the horses. <laughs> Are those the horses? Well, actually, Collins, good. They're just uh, part of the team. For 10 points each, could you give us the highest and lowest points in South America? The highest point is Mount Aconagua, which is 22934 feet. The lowest point is Salinas Grandes, which is 131 feet below sea level. Both locations are in Argentina. That is absolutely correct. 20 points for Medford. How do you like that? I got ahead of that kid in my organization. Hey, I didn't try to get him arrested, you know. 
You won't even answer the phone when I call. But, boss, how did I know there was going to be a raid? I mean... Will I you shut up? I want to hear this. However, we have time for one more question, and I will direct it to our Medfield panel. The Department of Agriculture stated last year the people of the United States consume more apples than any other country. Some of that consumption was in the liquid form. Can you give the phrase in slang for the central unfrozen portion in a container of frozen cider? Applejack. That's absolutely right. Applejack. Applejack, Chisholm City Social Club, 137, Feb 29, Animal 740, Table 6. Hey, boss, I had nothing to do with this, I swear. Applejack, Pompeii Palace, 138, Feb 29, Animal 740. You know, you did some, you've done some good features. And, you, you know, but more importantly, well, and we'll get to it. I mean, your career in television is, is some some of the most famous shows of all time. I mean, extraordinary. I, I mean, if you had only done, you know, Hill Street Blues, but you did Moonlighting, you did, you know, I mean, yeah, Batman, Star Trek. I mean, it's, it's incredible. He contrives it, contrives his plots like artichokes. You have to do them. You have to sift through. I think he says you have to sift through spiny leaves. <laughs> By the way, wait, wait, do you remember? <laughs> do you, 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 going back to Batman for a did you direct Otto Preminger or was did you have Eli Wallach? Or because yeah. I, when you did the Mr. Freeze on Batman, because oh, George Sanders, George oh, Sanders, oh, right. George Sanders, okay, you had George Sanders. The lesson, the lesson, the lesson I learned on that show was to direct. Now, I, I'm not in awe of actors to the extent that I hesitate talking to them. I do them a fine favor by talking to them. But for God knows what reason, I did not talk to George Sanders. Hmm. And, when the, and on one of the last couple of days, God, let's go once again. George, well, when, what, what, and his answer was, well, <laughs> if you're not going to talk to me, what, what am I supposed to do? Yeah. You get all of that in the one word, well. That's <laughs> well I, where have you been? Yeah. <laughs> I learned that the traffic goes both ways. Not, mm. on, not only can you, must you. You mm. must. That's part of the job. And, and as we also know, George was not a happy man. Well, thank you for letting me off the hook. <laughs> God, I, I had suicide to work with. Why the hell didn't I, didn't I do it immediately? It shows you how decent I am. Uh, so uh, in, in the 70s, you did the MOW Strange New World, which was, Ronberry by then wasn't involved with that, but that was sort of, that the extension of that, uh, the two pilots that he had done, uh, this John Saxon, Strange New World. You remember anything about that experience at all? Uh, the big, uh, <laughs> the, just you're doing two for one. It, it was scheduled as a two hour pilot and it was a two hour pilot. And at the end of the first hour, the, the lead character said, said, and so then we finished and we went on to do such and such. That was a lesson. 
you could fill two hours with with two one distinctive one hour episodes. Mm. Uh, yeah, as a matter of fact, I used the Roman train experience. I beat on the I beat on the camera to get to get it to tremble when they were supposedly in the en route in their craft. Right. But the but the villain was the sound man could hear my beating on the camera. What did he do? I don't remember what I did. Probably I padded. I got a towel. I probably got a towel from makeup and put it. I don't know. Anyway, uh, yeah, Saxon was good. He was very good. Uh, perhaps, perhaps a little rigid. His his strength might have been a little stiff. I don't know. Uh, I don't think there was any question about the. Did the show sell? And was it a series for a while? No. For a while. No. Didn't, didn't, didn't get picked up. So I think it was, yeah, backdoor pilot, but it never got picked up to series. But uh, what did get picked up to series is one of the great shows of all time. And you, you alluded to it earlier. Uh, you were friends with Grant Tinker and, and he brought you in to meet Steven to, uh, on Hill Street. How did that all come about? Do son, how'd I do? The car. Oh, Ma, they stole my car. That's a brand new unit, second one today. I'll tell you something. If I have to shoot up this whole street, I'm going to get that car back. There ain't no way I'm going to file a report okay, on this. Okay, no Take way at all. Hey, we don't want to collect a crowd. A crowd? A crowd? Oh, that's exactly what I want to do is Come collect on, a Rico, crowd. Rico, Rico. Hey, Rico, we lose two or three cars every me. month. They park them, they leave them. No big deal. It's a big deal to me. That's the second unit today. That's a brand new unit. Esther House is going to kill me. Rico, shut up. Man, we have no car and we have no radio, man. So let's just be cool. Let's just call in and get another unit. That phone! Look at this mess! Look at this! Hey, man, the world's full of phones, man. Lots of phones. Let's go find one. Hey, don't you squinty your eyes at me like that. I'm a peace officer, and I want you off the street when I get back. And I mean it! I'm so tired of dealing with people like this every single day of my life. good reputation I was sufficiently less green hmm. I was you know hot enough for and uh, we had a luncheon near the studio and uh, I think whether Grant was just whether I was Grant's boy and there was really no question I don't know it's possible that that's true but I remember saying, but guys, there's a lot of comedy in here too. Somebody said, 
somebody said at the table, that seems to me the way it, the way it is. That seems to me to be the way it works. Mm. And all the heads nodded. And I, and I said, but guys, there's a lot of good comedy in this material too. Let's not forget that. Something like that. Mm -hmm. And of course there was and is, is and was. But uh, I was sure treated royally, so it's, it's probable that I was Grant Sky and no one need say a word because right. they wouldn't get it anywhere. That's likely the question. And you won your first Emmy for it. People forget, I mean, because a lot of our younger audience doesn't realize what a groundbreaking show. That, I mean, not only was NBC uh, the last place network uh, at the time and, and, and just a disaster, but this was a show that completely was transformative from the medium, the way that television would be shot, the kinds of stories it could tell. Um, and it all goes back to that pilot, which is just, you know, absolutely brilliant. Um, and that ending with, with uh, Michael Warren and, and Charles Hayde uh, being being shot. Um, spoiler alert. For, but uh, what, do you, what do you remember about doing that? Pilot? And did you meet with much resistance from the network? Because obviously you were doing something completely different or were they in such dire straits that they were willing to, you know, accept the risk? Probably a lot of the latter. Mm -hmm. What I felt was complete control. I mean, I didn't shout it to the moon because I had it. I didn't have to talk about it. I was it. Somehow it worked. Now that, that may be the case of the, the, the multiple cast too, because when you're one of 15, you can't throw as much weight as if you're one of three. So that was in the mix too, like Hogan's Heroes. Mm -hmm. That's a blessing in a way. You gotta deal with all that stuff on the stage. When he crosses to the phone, when he crosses to the phone, take his chair. Yeah, okay, but what if you gotta see everything? So that's a lot of hard, traffic work, mm -hmm. but I felt in total control. I walked, I walked through a tent, I, I walked through a, a shot intentionally as the, as the approaching police car comes around the corner. We're on a hi-hat, which is a low, low shot. I wanted, I wanted, I, I we're about to roll or something, and I just didn't want to, say, wait a second, and go to an extra. So I just did it myself. It was just my shoes, which were grubby and appropriately worn and stuff. And I sort of felt guilty. And here I'm mentioning this thing 50 years later. And, and I felt kind of guilty about, about robbing some extra of, of special business. You get more for, I forget if that's the accurate phrase or not. But you get extra if you if you get some specific direction from the director, and I I felt I felt like a thief, and yet and yet I'm totally willing to steal, lie, cheat, misinform. You do anything you can to get it better. Yeah. But anyway, uh, I I had I had complete control. The only thing I didn't have com uh, complete control of was Michael Conrad, who was mm. a giant 
pain in the rear end, giant. And I finally, as an actor, as an actor, I finally found the way through to, through to him, and that was, Michael, will you try it? Mm. Now, he couldn't resist that, being an actor's actor. So I figured, I figured a way out of it. But he was a giant pain. See, and you would never guess from watching the show because he's so great in that show. And when he died in real life and, and he dies in the show, it's so sad because yeah. you really fall in love with that character. And I remember he, not your director, but he kind of hides during the, when the precinct is under siege. Everybody's doing what they can, locking doors and so on. And he's sort of hiding. He did that, not your director. And what an incredible ensemble. I mean, everyone in that uh, was, was so good. Um, uh, and, and, and some people that haven't done a lot since then, but uh, just what a deep bench of actors uh, throughout you know, that whole cast. Daniel Travanti, Hamill, um, uh, 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 all that, all of them were just so sensational. Yeah, they, James Sicking. They were really terrific. Yeah. So then, as if that's not enough, and again, the, 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 the sort of techniques that you pioneered with Hill Street are commonplace now into everyone's different, you know, whether it's the wire, whether it's uh, most police shows, you know, everybody's doing handheld, gritty, dirty. Um, I mean, you really changed TV with that show. It's not uh, not wrong to say. Uh, and then you go in and, and the, the, the next big pilot you do is a complete throwback to um, the Thin Man, Remington Steel, which is sort of like old Hollywood, but updated for the 80s. And it's it's just a delightful, yeah. charming show, except working with those two actors, I imagine, <laughs> who hated each other. They came to hate each other, I'm told. I wasn't around, but uh, the secret hero of that show was Stu Irwin. Stu hmm. Irwin. I, I created the show and he put myself and, and uh, the writer, Michael Gleason. Michael Gleason? And uh, I, I, uh, it, was, it was kind of old Hollywood. I, I was with Pierce Brosnan lately and he said, I said, play it with a wiggle. Now, I don't remember that at all. Hmm. I had developed, obviously, some shorthand with him. And he's a very sharp guy. So I felt comfortable in saying, play it with a wiggle. Hmm. And he just did. I mean, he really tore the house down with that performance. And Michael gave him a lot of a lot of Hollywood to work with too. That was, that was fun. That was, I mean, it's all fun. It's a little ugly around the edges sometimes. But <laughs> it, uh, yeah, I, I don't remember. I think I went a little too far in, in certain cases. I remember I had a couple of detective detectives secondary parts wear hats and it really stuck out and i thought it was fun and kind of facetious and uh i think there were a lot of meetings over that act with hats. <laughs> i couldn't do anything because yeah. think of what it cost to go and reshoot 
British dude in Tallinn. Anyway, I, I had I had a lot of control, and Stu Irwin adored the show, supported me like hell. He was Grant's partner, really, mm -hmm. and uh, and we we watched old old comedies, mm -hmm. the three of us. We rehearsed for a week, and in that, at the end of those rehearsals, we would watch Cary Grant and Gene Arthur or I was going to say, I mean, Cary uh, that uh, Pierce had a Cary Grant like, particularly in those kind of screwball comedies, he had that Cary Grant quality, but with that sophistication and charm. I mean, he's just wonderful in the show. Yeah, he's a, he's had a wonderful wonderful time, but. Even with losing the first 07. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He, when he lost Living Daylights because he, because the show got picked up. Yeah. Yeah. But it all worked out for him because a couple of years later he got it and he was a little older, more, more seasoned, probably better for the, better for the part. Yeah. And then you do another groundbreaking series, <laughs> another show, Moonlighting, which people again forget completely changed television um breaking the fourth wall completely meta it introduced um bruce willis to the world so we have you to blame or, or thank depending on your perspective on that uh, uh civil shepherd is just luminous in it and it's just a, an absolutely phenomenal show uh, and talk about being inspired by you know classic hollywood movies uh can you uh, tell us a little bit about you know what what the moonlighting experience was like for you this is david addison he's a real man's man and it's good the fans leap to their feet grown men cry this is maddie hayes men are just dying to meet her well that's got to hurt falling on your nose like that from the moment they met it was magic you know, I've known you less than 48 hours. And in that time, I've been driven from my home, watched a man die at my feet and have another stiff left in the back of my car. You need a drink. Moonlighting, premiering next Sunday at 9, 8 Central. It was a good one. A really good one. I know that's getting to be an old answer, but I'm... <laughs> realized I have a lot to be thankful for. Um, I don't think I ever told Bruce this. But character growing, never, never. This character will not grow an inch because he's got the world wired. He's got everything. The world is his party and his turf. That was instructive to me because it was a lot of fun to see a guy so gleefully in charge of himself and his world. In one moment, in the pilot, he gets infuriated and resentful, and he vows he's going to kill this villain once he get out, gets out of the thing. Now, there's a great cartoon where the guy is hanging, and he, <laughs> and he says something like, I'm going to get you if it kills me or something. Right. And that's what that character was. Mm -hmm. He was a mile ahead of everyone else, everyone else. There was no development. There was no danger. There was no humanity in him. He was him. That was the character. And I, 
suppose in subsequent years that didn't hold up because they've got to humanize the guy at some point, maybe. I don't know. But for the two hours, hour and a half, I don't remember whether it was a 90 minute or a, it might have been a 90 minute. Anyway, for those 90 minutes, he was King, King Farouk. He was King Farouk. I, I like that. Sybil was a strength man. And the wardrobe guy was great. Robert Turteries was terrific. The way he, he, he just, he had such magnificent taste. He could tell more story. And I remember on another job with Turteries, when we were discussing with the producers and so on, costumes, and the subject came up and Robert said, please, don't be significant. Don't, let's don't be significant. <laughs> please don't. I mean, how, how bad can that guy be? Yeah. If he wants to risk everything by the truth that he sees it, boy, I'm for him. Terrific costume. He had her looking flawlessly good, yeah. flawlessly right. Good guy. Yeah, no, and, 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 you know, you were really the master of the two-handers with Remington Steel and Moonlighting, and then sort of the end of that troika of two-handers was Lois and Clark, which was your, your, your Superman pilot without Superman. <laughs> I still don't believe it. A man who flies. Jeez, it's all over the TV. Oh, Jimmy, don't believe everything you see on TV. I'll tell you one thing, though. We'll have a pulled off a hoax like this. Yes, sir. I see it, but I don't believe it. What, a man who flies? No, Lois Lane finally, literally swept off her feet. Too bad he's an alien. I think considering the fact that I saw you first, you owe me an exclusive. Is that the rule? Well, no. But I'd appreciate it very much. Too. I had to I had to be careful of of Terry. She's the daughter of I think Cal Berkeley professors. Mm. She's really smart as hell. And around around the second run through, she is liable to say, if I have to hear these words again, I'm gonna go out that window. She's just <laughs> so smart. So smart and on top of it. 
And I remember saying, <laughs> I remember saying, Terry, there's no hope. She was in for an interview. And I was interviewing. And, I, and the last things I, thing I said at, at the interview was, but Terry, don't worry, there's no hope for you for this part, because it just doesn't make any sense. In fact, there's little hope for you in the whole business. So, <laughs> three minutes later, I get the report that she's in hysterics in the hallway. Oh, <laughs> oh my goodness. He didn't appreciate your, uh, your sarcasm. <laughs> we shouldn't laugh, but I mean, my Lord, my Lord. Anyway, she, that, you, have to, you have to find the, the right lang language for Terry and Michael. Michael, what's his name? Anyway, Hillstrom. Oh, uh, uh, for, for what? And for, I, had, for... I, I don't know if I was punting or trying a new language or what, but mm -hmm. I was wrong. Mm -hmm. uh, that was good. That was good. Lois and Clark. Well, it's funny. You look at it, you sort of bookended the career in a way. You did Batman and Superman. Not many directors can say that they had the two biggest superheroes, uh, you know, pop culture sensations of, uh, you know, the last hundred years under their belt. But you did Batman and Superman. That's funny. And, and did them well. I mean, the Batman is, uh, and, is, and is still Clark. beloved. And, uh, and, and, and Lois and Clark, uh, you know, recently had a resurgence on HBO Max. I fed Bruce Willis into that group, too. In a weird way, maybe mm. because of Glenn, Glenn King, mm -hmm. Aaron, Karen, who was the writer, creator, showrunner, producer. Yeah, he was. He was uh, a joy. We had done two two pilots previously that had not sold, and uh, so we knew each other well, and he gave me a lot of rope, and I gave. Gave him a lot of credit, which he deserved. Yeah. I mean, people forget what a huge phenomenon that show was, and 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 Bruce owes you and 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 Glenn his career. That show made him. I mean, he would have never gotten Die Hard without moon, Moonlighting. Yeah, that's right. And without Die Hard, you don't have the you know the superstardom that followed. So. Anyway, it, it, I, I just, you know, Bob, you've had such an amazing career and it's such an, a privilege to be able to talk to you about it. And we're so grateful that you could take the time uh, to reflect. I mean, you know, we only touched the, you know, uh, you know, touched so many of these shows that they, you know, are, are legendary. But uh, I wanted to make sure we hit as many as we could. Um, so we, we are deeply appreciative. Yeah, that's, that's great fun. I, uh, I realized too that how much I learned from the actors and from everybody I worked with. The wardrobe guy, Turneries, yeah. who said, please don't be significant. <laughs> I, I don't know. I'm start. And you worked with some great DPs also. Yeah. Um, I, didn't, I didn't mention Bill Snyder. Bill Snyder. Hmm. Star Trek, the cinematographer, 
Mm-hmm. I knew of, I don't think we worked together at Disney, but I knew of at Disney. So he was, I think, I wasn't in on the decision for Bill. I was, as I said, kind of green then. Wouldn't have been consulted. Because when you consult with the director, it costs you money. So don't talk to him. That's right. <laughs> well, if there's secret lesson in the, in the, if, if, if there's one other figure on the Star Trek Mount Rushmore, it's Jerry Finnerman, who you worked with on Moonlighting. Yes, yes. Yeah, Finnerman was great. Yeah, I, I don't know if I, I don't know if I hired Finnerman or not. I, I just don't remember. Yeah. Here's a great Star Trekker. At the time of this first Star Trek pilot, Howard Hawks produced a picture that his editor directed called The Thing. Christian Nyby, yep. A part of of the show was way down here. Uh, The nemesis was so close and dangerous that we all kind of talked down here. We were down, we were very careful with what we said, and it was great. So on the second day of rehearsal, I didn't, I don't think I named the source, but I got us down there. I got the cast way down there, way down there. It was very, and it was awful. I woke up one morning, saying it was awful. Thank you, it was awful. That, that was the end, my end in the business. The cast would drum me out and so on. So the next day I went in and I said, guys, I have an announcement. And I figured it was really some, some kind of curtains. And I said, your, your great director was wrong. This thing where we take out the exclamation points and we just play the mystery and attention is dull. It's awful. I'm wrong. Your director was wrong. I want you to put back the exclamation points and put back the force and the punch and the power where we normally used to all put it. So please do that if you would, please. And they said, okay. And that was the end of that. <laughs> well, that, that, that's great because it was hard to know at the time that Star Trek was operatic. You don't know. I mean, you had to find it. You, you had to find the show and you did. And, and obviously it speaks for itself because it's lasted all these years and you had to do it while you had a bunch of birds uh, in the belfry of the stage, chirping away, ruining your shots. I, I guess that's right. I guess, I guess that should be. I, I, yeah, I, I love I, that story. That's, that knocked me out. All you have to do is tell them the truth. Yeah. Imagine that, them be, uh, their great director telling them that he was wrong. How often does that happen? You don't hear that a lot. <laughs> Listen, thank you very much for the good words, for the good Thank you, Bob. This has been a pleasure. We appreciate it. So much fun talking with you. And as you can tell, I I enjoyed a lot of it. A lot of it, my ass. I enjoyed everything. (laughs) Fantastic. It's so good to hear. We enjoyed it as well. So thank you so much. And thank your son for facilitating everything. We really, we, we appreciate him putting it together. Great. 
Thanks. Well, you take care. Stay well, Bob. Great to talk to you. Bye-bye. Well, there you have it. The television legend, Bob Butler. So glad that we could spotlight his amazing contributions to television. That was fascinating. Um, I, I love sort of getting into the weeds a little bit about how you, how you sort of uh, have to manage this big giant behemoth that is uh, that needs you to keep pushing it to keep moving. So yeah, I'm going to laugh because when you say behemoth, I think of Stephen Wright and Reservoir Dogs, <laughs> the behemoth. Remember Cape Billy Simpsons in the 70s? Okay, never mind. Yes. But uh, <laughs> but he, there's some there's some great uh, stories that he tells about directing, and he's so self-effacing, yeah. which I love. Um, yeah. And he just has such a great sense of humor. You could just imagine what he was like on set and uh, just what an extraordinary presence he was. Um, And I'm uh, I'm afraid I geeked out a little bit too much on the Batman stuff, but you know, you know, I was so excited to talk to him about Batman (laughs) and I felt so stupid because I, you know, I don't really prepare much. So like I knew he had done all these episodes and one I remember he did uh, one with the um, with Mr. Freeze, but I didn't right. know which Mr. Freeze it was. And of course, it was George Sanders. And I probably should have actually, right. you know, done my homework. But um, it was so great to talk to him about Batman. Because again, it's like and then Hogan's Heroes is a show people don't talk about much yeah. anymore. But boy, I grew up on that. I used to watch that as much as I watched Star Trek growing up. It was on Channel 11, I think, or Channel 5. I don't remember. Yeah, f- but, uh, I think it was five. But uh, we love Hogan's heroes. Sure, absolutely. But you know what? The, the I I didn't want to say this part of the story because it sounds a little too geeky. But when I was a kid, um, and we would go on like road trips and things like that, my parents would uh, would give me a time estimate in Batman and Star Trek shows. So if we were an hour and a half away, it was in one Star Trek and one Batman. So uh, <laughs> this was this was their way of talking my language. Uh, much like uh, Robert Butler figures out the language of all his actors and, and support crew. So, and look, uh, you know, I've said this 9,000 times now on the podcast, but I got such a kick. I knew we were doing Bob Butler this week. And when I read that Bob Butler being name checked in uh, once upon a time yeah. in Hollywood novels, I could not wait to tell him. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, dude, you're in this book and I know you're never going to read it. And you probably don't even know what I'm talking about, but it's really cool. You got to trust me. <laughs> it's very um, funny. And the timing is, uh, is fascinating too. So fascinating. Yeah. It was interesting because, you know, um, Leonard always talks uh, about how Joe Sargent, you know, taught him, fascinating you know right. uh, but it was interesting to hear bob butler talk about leonard uh, uh you know get yeah, be, understanding be the, be the scientist be the yeah. scientist yeah 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 so that so that was interesting um you know it, the one thing he did shy away from which i know is something in the past he's talked more about is that it was not a love fest between him and gene and right. he was being much more charitable than yep. he has you know but i understand why and that's fine because we love gene here on the show yeah. And that's one of the reasons I didn't do the Gene voice. Oh, I wish you had. (laughs) No, you know what? Uh, With with uh, it's it's kind of tricky, especially when you don't know exactly what the what the relationship was. I mean, after after doing it for David Gerald and him freaking out on me, um, Mm. I kind of am am sensitive to that kind of thing. Well, I have to say, um, you know, he 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 talks about not really having much of a feature career, but uh, you know, computer wears tennis shoes is beloved by it's a classic uh, 
It's a classic. And, you know, the barefoot executive, not as much, but still well known. I mean, I do feel like his his um, Disney films, his Kurt Russell films have are, are more popular and better known and better loved than James Goldstone's. And I, I do think that the direction of the cage is 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 superior in virtually every way to what Goldstone did on where no man has gone before. Of course, James Goldstone had a lot less time. So I, 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 you know, it's, it's apples to oranges in a sense because you know they had a lot more time. And one of the reasons that they NBC wanted a second pilot was they wanted to see if they actually they could, could do make Star Trek on a TV schedule. Yeah, because um, you know the, the the cage went on and on and on um, because they were inventing the wheel. They were yeah. inventing the wheel. So anyway, but this was great. And I, like I said, I love these episodes when we get to do this. And I want to remind you that uh, Darren and I will be uh, uh, Delta variant withstanding coming to uh, Las Vegas for the big 55 year mission convention at the um, uh, Rio Hotel. We'll be doing a panel on Friday the 13th, uh, August 13th. So I hope you will uh, join us and our special guests at the uh, at the convention. We're very excited about it. And uh, I'm excited about meeting most of you. I'm not going to say all of you because I probably a few out there that I don't want to meet. But uh, but most of you, I'm looking forward to meeting. Darren's shaking his head. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm, I'm just being honest. I'm just being it's, honest. It's it's good. It's good. We we love everybody who listens to us to That's certain true. extents. Yeah, at a, <laughs> at, a, at, a at a distance. Because after okay. all, we are inglorious. So. We are glorious. Oh God. Um you you listen to any other pack podcast, Darren? Where'd that come from? Yes. I'm just I, wondering. What do you like? What do you listen to? I, I listen to uh oh thanks for putting me on the spot. Oh, I'm um, sorry. I can ask you another time. No, it's all right. I, I listen to Mark Marin a lot. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, he's great. I, I listen to uh Joe Rogan. I listen to um uh, oh my God! I, I listened to the the Office ladies, the two actresses from the uh, Office. My, who, my my wife and kids love that one. It's great. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not it's not my thing, but it's okay. I love the Office. I'm just not. And, that part. and you know what? I love Conan O'Brien's Needs a Friend. Oh, <laughs> which is his uh, his podcast. It's really fun and yeah, interesting. Yeah. And yeah. Anyway, yeah, yeah. I, I like podcasting. I like yeah. it a lot. Yeah, and and, and if uh, you're looking for some uh, new podcasts, um, you should check out the 430 Movie, where we curate a fantasy theme week of classic movies every Friday. Uh, also, Best Movies Never Made with uh, Josh Miller and Steven Scarlatta. And the new Leverage After Show, which is a video-only podcast on the Electric Surge app. So if you download Electric Now at your favorite app store, you can watch all these podcasts and more, including episodes of Leverage and now Flash Gordon serials, uh, Betty Boop cartoons is loaded with some great content. So if you haven't checked out Electric Now recently, there's never been a better time. Much we're working, like we're working on our Betty Boop uh, podcast. Yeah, no, no I don't think that's going to happen. <laughs> I, was, I was saying that there's never been a better, better time, much like uh, attacking Rarepente and getting never mind. Uh so uh, and then also, uh, please uh, rate us five stars if you can. It's a way to let other people know uh, that the show is worth listening to. It's a lot of competition out there in the podcast universe these days. So um, the more we can make some noise, the better. But we're, we're awfully grateful because the sh- all the shows have been doing extremely well, including the Trexperts briefing room, where we do audio commentaries for significant episodes in the Star Trek oeuvre. So uh, you should check that out. Um, that's, that's a new a show coming on uh, CBS or uh, Paramount Plus, Star Trek Oeuvre. 
<laughs> you know what I was thinking when I was we were talking to Bob? They should have brought him in on as a consultant or to direct the pilot of Strange New Worlds. How great would that be? Could you imagine? I can't imagine. No, because nobody has any respect for the past. But I think that it would. I, I just like even for him to be an executive producer on it. It's like, man, he's such a um, man. I mean, that guy is like he had the golden touch. I mean, yeah. look at the shows that he did. Yeah, it's amazing. And I, the amazing thing is people don't talk about moonlighting these days. There's a great new book out about moonlighting. Um, I didn't write it, but uh, but it's um, it's worth Question checking is, out. Why not? But no, because I do books that are like I want people to buy and there's not enough big enough audience for moonlighting. But the thing is, I, I, I'm shocked that in the streaming era that it's not readily available. I think it's because of music rights, yeah. which is a shame because I think people would love moonlighting. And you don't see Remington Steele around that much either. That's true. Um, yeah, and, there's, uh, a, there's a lot of there's a lot of, uh, you know, touchstones from our our uh, younger years that are just not there and they they have literally disappeared yeah hill street blues is on hulu and right. and hill street blues is is uh i mean it's just remarkable and i mean i went back and we watched a few episodes a couple of months ago and i just forgot how great that show is so um mm -hmm. and that pilot so really but remember when you're streaming let's be careful out there I had no idea that Michael Conrad was such an ass, but uh, so see, I, we are always learning new things on this podcast. And of course uh, we'll be back uh, next Friday with an all new episode on Trexpert's briefing room on a separate audio feed. Please check that out. That's an audio only podcast. Whereas in glorious Trexpert's, you can get both on the video feed as well as on the audio feed, wherever you listen to podcasts. So uh, we hope to see you in Vegas. And we absolutely hope we'll hear you or see you back here next Friday. Until then, keep on trekking and gloriously, of course. This show is produced by Dean Devlin and Mark A. Altman and is an Electric Surge Network production.